Hi, I'm Wendy Francis, nutrition therapist, emotional eating expert, and entrepreneur. I've helped countless people overcome their obsession with food and weight. Isn't it time you overcame what you had become and ignite who you were meant to be? Your time to become an overcomer starts now. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Overcoming Your Emotional Eating. On today's call, I'm talking about emotions in your food. Now, that seems redundant for this podcast, but the truth is it's always important to look at things a different way. Always imperative to continue our growth, understanding, learning in order to change where we are. And if you have any facet of emotional eating, any facet of emotions in your food, you'll benefit from listening to today's call. Take a listen. And if you love what you're here, please rate and review this podcast. I love to hear from you all. And thank you once again for your support in your listening. Keep on overcoming. Today I want to talk about something I talk about a lot. And I don't, you know, it's so hard now when I schedule something for myself, so to speak, and recognize that, gosh, like, how am I going to do something different with this? I've been talking about emotions and emotions in food and our relationship with food and that congruence with life for for years. I mean, I, I feel like that has been a big crux of my passion, my purpose, my skill set. And, you know, every time I go to talk about it, something new pops up or a different way to think about it or express it. And I hope tonight as I'm talking through and about emotions in your food, I bring something new for you to think about and think through as you're piecing the puzzle together for your food and your life. Sigmund Freud, and many people know Freud, said unexpressed emotions will never die. They are buried alive and will come forth later in uglier ways. The reason why I love that quote is because I'm constantly and have been constantly enabling, pushing, prodding, probing my clients and myself to really sit and honor emotions and to allow them to be expressed in ways that they need to be. Sometimes it's not about screaming at the person that made you angry. Sometimes it is about using a tool or a few tools to calm down that don't have anything to do with food. Um, but whether it's journaling or, you know, going to a kickboxing class, et cetera, and then being able to formulate the expression of that emotion is imperative. Sort of feel the emotion, to act the emotion if you need to act it in a way. And, and then really to be able to express it. Because what we know is those unexpressed emotions, when they're buried and they're buried and they're buried deep, the reality is 
we put them in a really large coffin and inevitably we can in fact jump into that coffin with those emotions because when they're not expressed, they will hurt us in the long run, whether it's physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually, they will come back. We have emotions in all that we do throughout our days. As human beings, we are ruled by emotions in many ways in such a respect that we don't even recognize it. I've had clients throughout the day keep a 12 or 18 hour log of just every hour on the hour writing down the emotion that they mainly felt in that moment. And what was so interesting is where they resided and how often they didn't even recognize the emotion that they were in until they actually had to track it. But all day long, we are in and out of different emotions. And we just don't recognize it. We are emotional beings. We have a midbrain or an amygdala, and that's where we have all these emotions, although they can be presented from our primal brain stem, which is more fight flight, uh, and then it can move up. But we have a lot of emotional um, residents, so to speak, in our brain because of our large amygdala, which is different than some other animals like reptiles. Not saying that reptiles can't be maybe happy, but we're not really sure how happy they can be because they don't present with an amygdala. So the reality is, you know, when we have these emotions and we know that we are residing in emotions all throughout the day, different facets, different emotions, different types, all due to different things. The reality is we also know that we're eating all different times, all different ways, all different places throughout the day too. And so in order, if we don't think that those two things don't meet up at some point of the day, if not multiple times a day, we're inaccurate. We know that there are emotions in our food and there's food in our emotions. For some people, it's very small amount. For some people, it's maybe one or two emotions that reside in their food and the majority and the rest is just eating for sustenance. When you speak with very intense athletes, Lance Armstrong, was an athlete that was interviewed years ago. And he really was to the point that he only ate for sustenance. Like he, cause he ate, had to eat anywhere from 10 to 13,000 calories a day. And he was tired of eating because he had to just eat to fuel. If not, he couldn't fuel his body enough to do what he needed to do, but that's few and far between. And so we know with the emotions, And we know with our food that many people reside in having more, much more than what Lance Armstrong would present with, which is just sustenance. But many of us have certain emotions that reside in our food. And others that I've worked with might have a lot of emotions residing in their food. So how did we, how do we get here? How do you get to the place where you are in your life? And then begin to recognize that you have emotions in your food. When I created E3 and your emotional eating, the online course that I created, I I did that because I wanted 
uh, everyone to be able to explore and understand their relationship with food so much better because we overlook that. And one of the modules I actually talk about, how did we get, how did you get here? How did this happen? Because so many of my clients have kind of woke up, so to speak, and recognized, ooh, uh oh, I'm in trouble. In whatever way that was, whether their weight was too low, whether their weight was too high, whether they were diagnosed with diabetes, whether it had been their 10th diet they were on, in whatever way they started to recognize that they had some emotions in their food and food in their emotions. And then the learning comes from recognizing how did you get where you're at? How did you get there? And we know there's a number of ways that people get to where they are in life with their food and their relationship with food. We know that there's a number of setups, so to speak, that enable you to be where you are right now as, a, as an adult or a young adult that have imparted of your past to your current relationship with food. So first and foremost, we know that we model eating behavior and emotional connection to food from our parents. We model how they eat, what they eat, where they eat, why they eat, if they undereat, if they overeat. We know that under the age of five, here's the crazy thing, from five and under is where we learn all from what our parents modeled. Good, bad, right, wrong, doesn't matter. But that model is what we create then in our mind or what we have in our mind. That, that becomes our model of the world with our food. And we don't even know it. There's not a lot more that we learn after the age of five. Now, not at all is lost. If you didn't have a great model, it doesn't mean that you will forever be scarred. That's one of the cool things I like about new learnings and becoming empowered. But it's imperative to learn what was modeled around you. Did your parents overeat? Were they constantly dieting? Did they hate their body even though they were underweight? What was modeled for you? Because that's unconscious learning, which creates unconscious or covert beliefs, which then drives our boat for the rest of our life. Now, you can get out of that, but you've got to go back to recognize what you were taught, where you are now, and then what happened in between. Talked a lot about this on some other calls, specific trauma or body patterns that can happen to us, whether that be in childhood, adolescence, or adulthood, they will shift our body, they will shift our emotions, they will shift our emotions in our food. Disassociation is a common thing that happens for people with trauma. And the reality is it's very easy then, so disassociation is almost like taking all of the emotion out of the moment. And many people eat in a disassociative pattern who have some trauma or PTSD in their past. And that is void of emotion and or distraction from emotion or overwhelm. But recognizing that you are prone to that is imperative so that you can learn some tools to help you move through that. We also know that food moves us into our life and can be a learned habit or pattern, right, as we get older. 
So if we're, and, and we also know that there's a congruence pattern, that's what I call it, a congruence pattern between who we are in life and who we are in our food. Now, the cool part about this, and this is what I really love when I was working one-on-one -on -one with people or if I work in a group with people, I love watching the distinct uniqueness of this. So for some people, just for example, who are people pleasers, who never say no in life, they never say no, well, they might use food to co-regulate their life by always saying yes to food. So I always say no, in, I always say yes in my life, right? And then they're going to co-regulate that by saying yes in their food. Conversely, right, for somebody who has a lot of stress in life, they may regulate that by eating a lot of food to help regulate the stress, right? So we can see everybody's regulatory mechanism and relational mechanism with food can be just a little bit different. It's interesting to note the patterns within oneself to understand those distinct differences. Relational habits or patterns are distinctly unique to each person. So that's really where individual therapy or individual um, counseling, coaching can really help pull those patterns out because those are not set in stone, so to speak. Those are definitely a lot more uh, understanding a lot more of your, your triggers and what that means from life to food and food to life and the back and forth between those things. So there are differences between emotional and physical hunger, clearly. And I wanted to take just a minute to really help you recognize, right, just from a, a, a black and white perspective, like what is the difference? Because a lot of times we may not know. We may just get caught up in the moment. And so having some things in black and white, almost like a checklist, right, that you can say, okay, boom, 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 oh, this is emotional, or boom, 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 oh, wait a minute, this is really physical. So this is somewhat of a checklist that you can start to think about if you're questioning whether you are in a pattern of emotional eating or whether you're a pattern of physical hunger. We know that emotional hunger comes on suddenly. It hits you in an instant, it feels overwhelming and urgent. Physical hunger, on the other hand, so it's emotional hunger. Physical hunger, on the other hand, comes on more gradually, right? It's like I'm kind of hungry, kind of more hungry. I haven't had a chance to eat. I'm even hungrier. Okay, gosh, I am really hungry. I need to eat soon, and wow, I'm starving. See, that's gradual. The physical is gradual. Emotional is boom. Emotional hunger creates specific comfort foods. True hunger, right? Physical hunger. Physical hunger, you're like, I'm just starving. I just, you know, I don't care if I have a salad or a sandwich, like I just got to eat. But emotional hunger craves specific comfort foods, whether that be mashed potatoes, whether that be a dessert type option or french fries. There's a specific craving for a specific food that is generally, generally, Emotional hunger. Emotional hunger generally leads to mindless eating. It's also uh, not, satisfied, not, not satisfied once you're full. In fact, sometimes you may not even know you're full. 
it's important to recognize that. And emotional hunger isn't located in your stomach. So you're not going to hear things like a growling belly or a pang in your stomach. You're going to feel your hunger as a craving you can't get out of your head. You're focused on specific textures, tastes, and smells. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to a client and they're like, gosh, I'm just so, I just really want the taste of the chocolate on my tongue. I'm so hungry. And then I'm like, are you really physically hungry? Because the specific texture, taste, or smell is absolutely based in emotionality. And emotional hunger often leads to regret, guilt, or shame. When you eat to satisfy physical hunger, you're really unlikely to feel guilty or ashamed. Now, this subsidiary of this is for my clients who have dealt with anorexia. Um, that is very different. They will feel physical hunger. They will try and eat a little bit to support their physical hunger, and they are radically shamed. But I'm talking about everybody outside of that box. So we can see the specific differences, right, between the two. And there are many emotional eating triggers, but things like stress, stuffing emotions, boredom, or feelings of emptiness, childhood habits, social influences, all of those, you can absolutely figure out that they are an emotional component. You may have other emotions, anger, sadness, fear, anxiety, stress, frustration, worry, that can all lead to eating. I've even had clients who've expressed feeling happy and eating in response to happiness, which kind of makes sense based on a lot of our patterns in growing up, right? What do we have at birthday parties and celebration? Lots and lots of food. And a lot of those foods like pizza or cake and ice cream all lead to the dopamine pop that I've talked about in the past. So it would make sense that we would get that dopamine shift, feel that great yummy surge in our brain, and also we've got lots of fun stuff going on around us. So the reality is, you know, recognizing for you what emotions are in your food and what emotions are not. You can actually start keeping an emotional eating diary or you can track your emotions throughout the day, like I said, and all you need is one or two days. This isn't something that you continue on and on and on, unless you're working with somebody that wants you to do it so that they can help you learn. But even then, doing it every day for weeks on end is not a benefit, unless for some reason they're looking for something that's going to take them a longer time to help you with. Find that more often weeks on end of a journal process or a diary process only leads people to either be non-compliant and or to realistically move into that shame or guilt. Feeling our emotions is imperative. Feeding our emotions is not and can be harmful to not just our body but our mind, soul, and psyche as it distances us from our united emotional integrity and our mind and body connection. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend. Rate, review, and subscribe. You never know who you'll help become the next overcomer.